And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Cecilia Munoz is a remarkable person. I first met her when she was one of the foremost advocates for immigration reform in the country at the National Council of La Raza, which is now Unidos U.S. I worked with Cecilia when she served as Director of Intergovernmental Affairs in the White House during the 2009 financial crisis, the H1N1 pandemic, and the Gulf oil disaster. So she has a real perspective on what the government should be doing in moments of crisis. She went on to lead President Obama's Domestic Policy Council, and now She's written a book called More Than Ready, part memoir and part a series of lessons for young women of color who want to follow in her path. I sat down this week with Cecilia, virtually of course, to discuss her journey, how, based on her experience, she feels the government is doing during the siege of COVID-19, and about the fault lines in our society that the virus has once again exposed. Here's that conversation. Cecilia Munoz, so good to see you, my friend. We, we went through a lot together some time back, and it's great to see you now. And we did because you were the director of intergovernmental affairs in the White House when I was working as a senior advisor to the president. And I bring that up at the outset because these are times in which intergovernmental relations are most important. You worked with mayors and governors and local officials through a lot of situations. First, the economic crisis of 2008-9, also H1N1. And I was wondering what lessons you learned from that and what you're seeing now. And is there anything that gives you encouragement? And are there, are there things that are worrying you? Yeah. So first of all, thank you, David, for having me. It's a joy to see you, too. I'm sorry we're not in the same yes. actual location, but it's a joy to see your face and hear your voice. Thank you. Yeah, you know, so it was H1N1 and also the oil spill, um, if you remember, in 2010. Yes, in the Gulf of Mexico, yes. Indeed. That went on for three months. And um, both of those experiences were really, for me, lessons in how important it is for the federal government to collaborate effectively with state, local, and tribal governments. Um, right in the oil spill, as you, you, you will remember, Valerie Jarrett and I were on the phone with the five Gulf state governors, all 100% of them were Republicans, every day, uh, every morning, seven days a week, um, to make sure that they were getting what they needed out of the response. We wanted to have our own kind of direct channel to them. And to their credit, most of them, I mean, some of them are, you know, pretty political guys, obviously, the politicians as well as governors. But I remember very distinctly that, you know, somebody like Haley Barber. Yeah, former chairman of the Republican National Committee. And what he cared about in that moment was governing. And so he was a great partner. He was very clear in what he needed. And he was very direct and, you know, saying thank you or letting us know when, you know, when we weren't on the mark. But it was all about governing and dealing with cleaning up the mess. Uh, and I really respected that and appreciated it. And for our part... It was really important to us and to the president that we were available to be their partners in this crisis because the most important thing was getting it cleaned up. And so, you know, I, I reflect on that and think with a lot of dismay at the current president talking about kind of playing favorites among the governments and talking about how, you know, it's the stockpile of equipment, the federal stockpile isn't really for the states, which begs the question of who it might be for. Um, 
And so on the bright side, you're seeing a lot of really excellent leadership from governors on both sides of the aisle um, and from mayors. But the dark side of that is that they're doing it in the absence of federal leadership, in the absence of clear guidance from the federal government. And that's why you have you know, different policies state by state, and you have some states talking about opening up in the, you know, in the face of what the, what the science is telling them. Um, and other states, you know, still battening down the hatches. And the result of that is that people will get hurt. And that is, um, a, you know, a result of the failure of federal leadership. They're, you're supposed to be in this boat together, rowing in the same direction. And that's not what we're seeing right now. And the result of that is a lot of pain. It's such a difficult situation because while the cure is necessary, the, uh, and it's not really a cure, it is a tactic that's necessary to keep our public health system from being overwhelmed with cases and to save lives. But the economic devastation is, I mean, just so hard to imagine 26 million people unemployed in the blink of an eye. And uh, staggering. So you, you understand the desperation of local officials and, frankly, federal officials to want to get that done. But that becomes... You know, to get the economy going again and to get people back to work again. And it's such a messaging challenge to explain to people that the suffering that that we as a country are imposing on ourselves is necessary because to not do it would prolong and deepen what is already a terrible crisis. Yep. But look, what's really clear is that the best way to bring the economy back online is to is to Make sure that the public is confident that the advice that they're getting and that the that businesses are getting before they reopen is reliable. Because if we, you know, if we get go back online too soon and we have more deaths and more devastation and more kind of spikes or, or God forbid, more overwhelming of the health system, it will take longer before we can get back to normal. And that's just not good for the economy. So you you really see why it's important to have steady, stable leadership that's guided by the science. Um, and that's, you know, providing a consistent and reassuring message to the American people. It's possible to be reassuring, and in fact, it's necessary to be reassuring, even at a time of crisis, even when you don't have all of the information because the situation is unfolding. You know, we had to do that more than once uh, when we were in government. And, boy, seeing the absence of that kind of steady leadership is really, it's not just disheartening, it's terrifying. You know, you you point out, and I I've been impressed by the sort the the way the governors generally have handled themselves, Republican and Democrat. And you know, a few weeks ago we had Chris Christie on this podcast, and he talked about Hurricane Sandy back in 2012, which you'll remember, and the cooperation between the Obama administration and Christie himself and his state, and the the, the sort of iconic scene where the president went up to tour the damage with Christie, for which Christie paid a huge political price later for having uh, exchanged a warm uh, handshake right, and, right. And, and shoulder grasp with the president. So talk to me about the relationships that you developed with these mayors and local. You mentioned uh, Haley Barber. Uh, were, were there others? Where I mean, did you find yourself in a position where people were willing to sort of set aside partisanship and work closely with you? Yeah. Most of the time, that's really what happened uh, in the economic crisis of 2009. You know, part of my job was to wrestle up support for the Recovery Act, and uh, and you know, part of our 
collective job was to make sure that the resources were getting out the door where they were most needed. And we had mayors and governors on both sides of the aisle really clearly saying, look, we, look this is one, the effects of this are devastating on our communities, and we got to work together to make this happen. But at the time, if you'll remember, there were only four Republican governors who were willing to sign a letter in support of the Recovery Act. And a number of other Republican governors would say to me privately, yes, I, like, I, you know I need this to happen, but please don't make me sign the letter because I'll pay a huge political price for it. So even from the very beginning, even with an uh, epic downturn and a really epic economic crisis, um, you know, some of them were aware of the politics that they had to play. Um, and only a handful, really only four, were willing to stand up and say, yes, of course we need this, and I'll put my name on paper. Yeah, one of those Republican governors is now a Democratic congressman, Charlie Crist from Florida. So he didn't endure long in the, uh, in the Republican Party. You talked about getting funds out during the economic crisis of 2009. The person in the White House who was assigned to oversee that process was Vice President Biden. Right. And my recollection was that he was in constant communication with governors and local officials. Uh, talk to me about that and your general sense of him yeah. uh, in that moment. So that's the kind of moment where it's just all about governing, where you, you, you know, you're, it's much less about playing politics and much more about making sure the resources are getting where they need because people are hurting and there's nobody with a greater feel for what you need to do when people are hurting than Joe Biden. I mean, that's a, an experience his family had. You know, he poignantly talks about the time his father had to tell his family that he had lost his job. He's somebody who, who cares about that, who has a lot of empathy, and who understood at the time his job was about making sure this worked because there was nothing more important. And that meant... Um, being as good a partner to Republican mayors and governors as to Democratic mayors and governors, because, you know, that's, that's what it means to serve the country in a time of crisis. And, you know, I think a lot about governing now, because um, it's hard. And it, but it matters, and I think we've gotten a pretty good civics lesson in why it matters, um, that, it, that it's done well. And one of the things that I love about Joe Biden, in addition to just the quality of his heart, um, is that he cares about governing and he knows how to do it. Um, and his leadership of the Recovery Act is one really good example of that. We used to joke that, you know, some of the same Congress members who proudly voted against that bill would rush to be the guy holding up the great big blown up copy of the check in the photo op or be at the ribbon cutting when the project was opening up. They were willing to be there when the money was getting spent, even if they weren't willing to, to vote for, for spending the money in the first place. And, you know, at the end of the day, Biden understood that. He wasn't, he was less interested in playing politics than he was in making sure the money got where it was needed because that's what was going to put people back to work. You know, his bind right now is that he has this history, he has this experience, he has this preternatural sense of empathy for people, but he's stuck in his basement. He doesn't have an official role. He's not a mayor, he's not a congressman, he's not a senator. And uh, hard to tell that story. Now, it may, he may be sitting there thinking, well, you know, from an electoral standpoint, he's not losing ground because the president is behaving as the president has behaved. But it is a challenge for Biden to be 
relevant in this moment. And it must be really frustrating given the experience that he actually has that is relevant to this. Let me ask you about H1N1. How much did you have to do around that particular uh, question? What do you remember about it? Oh, I remember a lot. (laughs) I've been thinking about it a lot as well. What I remember very most vividly was sitting in the Situation Room getting the briefing about what happened in Philadelphia and St. Louis after one city held its parade and the other city canceled its parade. In, in 1918. Yeah, in the pandemic, in the, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. The reason they showed us that chart was to underscore why it's important to do social distancing before people start getting sick. Right? In some ways, you're, you, you're supposed to do it at a time when everybody thinks you're crazy. Um, and if you succeed, they will continue to think you're crazy because people didn't get sick. Uh, I remember that very vividly. And I also remember that one of the challenges of H1N1 was that it was more lethal to children than the flu. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we worked incredibly hard to make sure there was a testing regime. We got a million people were tested in the first month. We worked incredibly hard to work towards a vaccine. Um, but the spirit in which we did that work strikes me as just as important as the, the actual tasks that we undertook because there, was no, there were no politics in that room. There was 100% what is, you know, what is Dr. Fauci telling us? What are the epidemiologists saying? What do we, what, you know, we need to be guided by the science here even if it means doing things that are hard and scary, and even when it means admitting that we don't know, you know, all of the direction that this is going to take. A hundred percent of the spirit of the people in that room was our job is to keep the American people safe, and we will, you know, we're not playing politics. We'll be partners with mayors and governors and tribal leaders across the aisle because that's our job. Like the, the, minimum course requirement for governing is doing what you have to do to keep people safe. Yeah, we didn't have to we didn't we didn't have to ask the same level of sacrifice as this and perhaps we wouldn't have had to ask that if there had been a quicker mobilization here. But one thing that I remember, and Robert Gibbs, uh, our former press secretary, reminded me of this the other day. I think there was one briefing on a Sunday that may have involved the president at the White House. I'm not even sure whether he, but it it may have involved him. Uh, But every other briefing on H1N1 was held at the CDC by the scientists. It wasn't a political event. Last thing on on this, one of the really stark things about this virus is that it does illuminate the fault lines in our country that are there that we're aware of, but now they're they're brought out in stark relief when you see the level of devastation in yeah. poor communities and communities of color. And you know, you having been an advocate all your life for the Latino community, for the Hispanic community, and in your broader role in the White House uh, for people who are forgotten. Yep. This must strike you to the core. Oh, yeah. It's, um, I mean, I have a lot of grief about it, actually. Um, and the sad truth about it is that any one of us, before we had a single scrap of data about who was actually affected, any one of us you know, sat around the tables together in government, or certainly people from the communities of color that I, that I work with, could have predicted exactly who was going to be hardest hit by this virus and by the economic downturn. We knew that in advance. 
It is, you know, always how it works. The folks who are still at work, even without proper protection, are the folks, you know, picking the crops that end up in the grocery store and trucking those groceries to market and selling those groceries to us. And, you know, the folks acting as caregivers, the folks driving buses, um, those folks are disproportionately communities of color. Um, and they're disproportionately getting sick, in part because they're still having to work and they don't have adequate protection. And they're disproportionately likely to have underlying conditions. I mean, the list goes on, the list of reasons goes on and on. But the fact of the matter is, you know, as they say in the black community, when America gets a cold, the black community gets pneumonia. Same is true in, in the Latino community. Um, and, you know, the organization where I'm working now, which is called New America, did an analysis of all of the people who are supposed to be um, getting benefits under the CARES Act that Congress just passed. And a good half of them will get, you know, we've already received the money. And the other half um, are not, if they may not get help at all. And if they do get a check, they may not get it until September, which isn't so helpful if you need to pay the rent in May. Right. Um, and so we're, you know, we are not thinking ahead. <laughs> we're not using what we know about who is most affected and who is most likely to need help. And as a result, even our well-intentioned efforts to help them are, are going to miss the mark. You know, I think a great concern is the federal government is properly taking on a huge amount of debt in order to deal with the emergency in the short run. But I remember in 2009 that the Recovery Act, which was a pittance compared to what is being spent now, I think it was, you know, $887 billion, became a, and it did inflate the debt, it became the rationale for essentially ratcheting down spending. So you have a situation now where uh, we're going to have exponentially more debt as a result of this. And you can just see the debate unfolding where, you know, you're constrained, even as we've now seen just how much need there is out there and how frayed the social compact is. Uh, and at the same time, state and local governments are under siege, and they're deliverers of, of uh, much of this. So the question you know, that I think we're going to have to confront is, do things actually get worse as a result of this? Do we have the wherewithal to actually mend this social compact and do what government needs to do at this moment? Or uh, will we fall back into an old debate in which the door gets slammed shut and we don't address these long-standing problems. Well, that's exactly right, and it is a real concern because I, the the crisis is really exposing the ways that we've failed each other as a society, which is just a vivid relief right now. And I'll give you one example. Of the workers who the government has labeled essential workers, people who we know need to be in the workforce, my organization did an analysis. 30 to 40% of them don't earn a living wage. They earn less than 15 bucks an hour. 30 to 40% of the people that we are counting on right now for our very survival. And who are more at risk because they don't have the luxury of staying home, not going to work. They can't do their jobs on Zoom. Exactly right. And so we know we rely on them. I've been on you know, endless conversations with my colleagues who are trying to work and homeschool their kids who are saying things like, man, we should be paying teachers a million dollars. This is really hard. You know, How do preschool teachers do it? We're, we're having those conversations. We're not having a policy conversation about raising their wages. We're, the furthest we've gotten is hazard pay. But when we talk about, well, like, what about a minimum wage? What about 15 bucks for essential workers? 
at least the pushback that I've been hearing is, ooh, feels like a bridge too far. Ooh, feels like it might be expensive. Um, and, but we're seeing, frankly, how costly it is when we don't change some of those structures. And, um, you know, God help us if we come out of this crisis without the will to be better than we were before. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the big questions. We, we've got to get through this. But doing an after action on exactly what happened and why it was so devastating to so many is is going to be a really important part of this and 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 helping people get back to some semblance of a of a normal life. Yeah, I agree. Financially is going to be uh, an important part of this. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. I want to talk about your story. You've written about it very compellingly, and, and you've used it to good purpose in a book called uh, More Than Ready. Uh, and you talk about your own journey uh, as a way of inspiring and offering, uh, really mentoring to other young uh, women of color as they come up. You were born in Detroit, but your folks were from Bolivia. Tell me about them. Yeah, my parents came to this country in 1950. Um, and my dad got a job in the auto industry. And so we're Detroiters. I'm the youngest of four siblings. We were all born in Detroit. And I have this wonderful, sprawling, sweet immigrant family that are all Michiganders. Uh, you know, Latinos are we're visible in places like Florida and Texas and California and New York. But they're, they're, I am a Midwestern Latina, and that's a thing. <laughs> um, yeah, so I come from this sweet immigrant family. And the American dream was real for my parents. You know, my dad worked at Ford Motor Company for 40 years. And as a result, we had health care and a roof over our heads, and they were able to educate all four other kids and to, you know, retire modestly but comfortably. And I have to say that, you know, my very first day walking into the White House, the day after the inauguration, and every day after that, I felt like I had a really deep sense that my job was to make that possible for everybody, that my family was lucky. And... Uh, and, you know, part of what we're here for is to make that possible for everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your story is a little bit different than a lot of other stories because your your family was, I mean, your your father was uh, an engineering student at the University of Michigan, but he was a second generation engineering student at the University of Michigan. And Bolivia is, people don't think about Bolivia uh, as much when they think about immigration. And yet you uh, confronted some of the same sorts of issues that immigrants all over our country yeah. confront. I know you spoke Spanish. You wrote about this, Spanish in the home, and uh, as well as English. Uh, but you were sort of taken aback when you got to school and nobody else spoke Spanish. And so you didn't. And so there must have been some sense of wanting to, you know, find belonging by kind of downplaying the essence of who you were. Yeah. Spanish kind of became the language of secrets in my family. We would use it if we wanted to say something that we didn't want other people to understand, which is much harder to do now because the language is everywhere. But in Detroit, in the 60s and 70s, when I was growing up, that wasn't true. And, you know, my parents were nearly evicted from their first apartment for speaking it. Um, their landlady accused them of speaking Mexican and threatened to evict them. And they thought it was cute that she didn't understand that the, this was the language of Cervantes. You know, they were shocked but mostly thought, well, here's 
they, they didn't understand racism in the U.S. They thought, here's just a woman who really doesn't know what she's talking about. You write about a uh, an interesting conversation, kind of shocking conversation you had with a friend at the time there was turmoil in Latin America and the friend sort of said offhandedly, you know, if the U.S. went to war in Latin America, that you, you could go to an internment camp. I mean, that must have been striking and disturbing. Yeah, I think that's when I finally got it that, I mean, I've, I've written about that incident as kind of the propellant that led to my whole career in the civil rights movement and the immigrant rights movement. And I think that was the moment that I got it that, for some people who who knew us, right, who understood, I, I think of myself as a Midwesterner, um, but that for some people, we're, all, we're just always going to be the other. And you see that now, I think, sadly, my friends in the Chinese-American community are experiencing that now um, in the sense that they see themselves as Americans and suddenly people are literally spitting on them and, and doing other terrible things because they see them as, both Chinese and not American and potentially responsible for this virus situation. None of that is actually true. But it was my first moment of deep understanding that for, for some people, my family is never going to seem American. My name is never going to sound like an American name. And um, I think that's why I do what I do. You, uh, you went to the University of Michigan and followed in the family's footsteps there. But even there, you didn't find a whole lot of diversity. You write about that as well. Yeah, so I was at Michigan. You heard my grandfather and my dad and my uncles all went to Michigan. It's a big family tradition. I was there in the 80s, right after the affirmative action Supreme Court decision. And so the year that I graduated from Michigan, the incoming freshman class, which is thousands of students, had about 20 Latinos in it. Um, had a long, long way to go. And I had very few Latino faculty. It was still a pretty white place. And I'm, I'm still associated with the university, and I've been proudly so. And they've come a long way since then. Um, but I didn't really, frankly, experience my own community outside of my own family until I got to graduate school, which I, I, I did my graduate work in California. And that kind of changed everything. How much did it trouble you uh, that that was the case at Michigan, or were you just used to that? From you grew up in suburban Detroit, were you just used to that, and did it not impact on you that much? You know, through my college years, pretty much every Latino that I knew, I was related to. Now I have a really big family, so that was a lot of people, but still, so um, it did bother me. This is part of what I went to the university to learn. I had to invent my own major, I had a double major, and half of it was in Latin American studies, and I had to structure it myself because there weren't enough offerings um, at a huge university like that. Like, Latin America wasn't so much on the, on the sort of agenda, and certainly not the U.S. Latino community. Um, and, you know, so this was the 80s. We were still invisible, except in certain parts of the country. Um, and, you know, I've, I consider it a great privilege that over the course of my career, I've been involved in Latino politics and policy um, during the period when we went from invisible to visible. And, you know, we, there are a lot of, we may be a lot of things, but invisible isn't one of them anymore. When you went to Berkeley and you found this very diverse community, I assume a lot of folks were from Mexico or families were from Mexico. How were you embraced 
as someone whose family was from Bolivia, were there resistances there? Were there divisions there? You know, I found out when my brother read the book that he and I had completely different experiences. He and I were roommates at Berkeley. He was in the law school when I was in a graduate program. And my experience was that I was volunteering in this legal clinic and the lawyers were Mexican-Americans. And, you know, I was bilingual. And as far as they were concerned, I was family. I was, I was kind of part of the community. I remember the, one of the lawyers that I worked with, um, a guy named Martin, basically said, you must call yourself a Chicana. You're a Chicana. Chicana means, refers to a Mexican-American. But he was like, yeah, but you're one too. Like, you totally count. My brother, whose name was Eduardo Munoz, went to the La Raza Lawyers, right, the, the organization in the law school for the Latino students, and they said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I kind of want to join the La Raza Lawyers, and they were like, no, 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 you don't belong. You and your blue eyes and your Bolivian heritage, not so much. So he had the act exact inverse of my experience, and I, I, we actually didn't talk about it at the time. He, we, we, he told me about it after he read the book. What about, uh, you, obviously, you speak with a, a Spanish with a different accent. Was that noted by the people you were dealing with? No, you know, it's the only time it has ever come up, and I smile as I say this, is nobody in California or in all of the years I've been doing immigration work has accused me of talking like a Bolivian. But my mother, I used to come home from, you know, come back to visit, and my mother would say, your Spanish sounds a little Mexican. <laughs> so I guess I must have picked it up along the way. And there was a time as a Midwesterner, especially in the years I was working at the National Council of La Raza, when I could tell within the Mexican-American community, I could distinguish like a Milwaukee Mexican from a Chicago Mexican from a Kansas City Mexican by the way they spoke English. Like there was a time I was that good at it, but that's been a while now. Yeah, you know, I used to be, as, as you know, in the political media business. And you, you worked for an immigration lawyer uh, in Oakland, and, and that led you, after you graduated, to come to Chicago to work for Catholic Charities on, a, on an immigration project. There was a image, immigration liberalization at the time, and yep. legalization was going on, and you worked for Catholic Charities there. You arrived in Chicago at a very volatile time in Chicago political history. And um, I actually, uh, one of my Clients, Harold Washington was the mayor uh, when you arrived. When we did ads in Chicago, we had to use a Colombian voiceover because if we used a Puerto Rican voiceover or a Mexican voiceover, it would totally antagonize one or the other of the communities. Uh, so it was a very, you know, people, I think people sometimes refer to the Latino community or the Hispanic community without regard to the fact that it's a very diverse community in and of itself. Yep. I remember I was there for all of that. I was there in the Washington, Washington regime, and I remember the first four aldermen, the first four Hispanic aldermen, were very carefully two Mexicans and two Puerto Ricans. Yeah. And I was fascinated by all of it. And in a way, being not one nor the other, I got to be all of it, right? I, which was, in some ways, it's been an advantage. But yeah, I found that those dynamics absolutely fascinating. And I remember exactly where I was when Harold Washington, when I got, when I heard the news that Harold Washington had passed. Yeah. Anybody who lived in Chicago, that was such a stunning event. Having worked for him, it was a really emotional one. But I think for the city as a whole, it was, 
it was wrenching. You uh, you did this work for Catholic Charities, and it was really direct service that you were providing. And you write that it was too difficult because when you couldn't help someone, the, the sense of, of failure and the sense of disappointment and having to tell them that you couldn't uh, was more than you could handle. Yeah, I had, I believe at the time very strongly that that's the kind of work I was destined for was to do it in a, be in a direct service job where you sort of have clients coming in and you offer help to those clients. And that's what they do at Catholic Charities. And I could not let go of my anguish um, around the people that we couldn't help, the people who didn't qualify for legalization at the time. And I was interviewed by the Trib, by the Chicago Tribune. That they did, a, uh, around, I guess, around the turn of the year, 88 people to watch in Chicago in 1988, and I was one of them. And in that interview, I described my job as it was like watching people be pushed off of a cliff knowing that you can only help half of them. And I thought, man, those are not the words of a person who is in love with their work, <laughs> you know? So I learned that I am not cut out for direct service, but I found my voice as an advocate. I learned but through failing at, I mean, we, I, I was good at it. My project was successful, but I consider myself as having failed because I, I wasn't good at what I set out to do. But that, I tell that story because I learned so much about what I think I am cut out to do. And that's, I became an advocate after that, and I've been doing that ever since. Chicago Tribune is my alma mater. So they were right that you were 80, one of the 88 people to watch, but they just didn't know that it wasn't going to be in Chicago. It was going to be in Washington. <laughs> and you got a job at uh, the National Council of La Raza, which is now Unidos U.S. But tell me about that transition, because all of a sudden, and you write about this in your book, and it's particularly instructive for young women who go into these advocacy roles, particularly in Washington, the power corridors of Washington, but you found yourself in the middle of lawmaking in a very male-oriented preserve. Yep. So, and I'm, as you know, I am all of five feet, two inches tall, and I'm pretty soft-spoken. And the, the people who were immigration advocates in D.C. were largely men, and they were tall. And um, I did a couple things. One is that I very deliberately, in order to make myself kind of take up more space in the room and seem tough enough, I took up swearing, which is not something I was raised to do. Um, and I kind of taught myself how to do it because I thought it would help me, help the guys take me seriously. But then I also describe how after one congressional markup, the guys kind of all stood up and they formed a little huddle and, you know, compared notes and decided what they were going to do next. And I was not in the huddle. And I went to my boss at the time, a really wonderful guy who's still at Unidos, his name's Charles Kamasaki. And he said, look, you're new, you're short, you're a woman. You need to just like use your elbow, elbow your way in and say, come on, guys, like you got, can you make room for a colleague here? And he was right. And I only had to do it once. Uh, but, I, but I did have to do it. And it's a little bit of a metaphor for, for what it's been like. Um, Washington, as you know, is still a pretty male town. And, you know, I've learned that the qualities we associate with toughness, the qualities we associate with leadership are kind of qualities that are associated with, with, with guys or, uh, you know, with, with behaviors like swearing. And that doesn't necessarily come naturally to all of us. Um, but I also learned that there are qualities that we undervalue as leadership qualities. There's a whole chapter in the book about kindness, which I have concluded. I mean, it gets mistaken for weakness 
all the time. But I think I just think that's wrong. It's not a sign of weakness, and actually, it's an asset in the workplace. It's an asset when you're trying to make policy. It's an it's you don't understand it as an asset, but it is. I think of it as a skill set, and we need more of it, not less. And you know, maybe our current president is kind of Exhibit A as to why we need more. Of it. Well, I, I will testify, having worked with you, that I never thought of you as anything but strong. But I always thought of you as kind as well, and it is a good combination. You know, I met you before, I don't even know if you remember, but I was with Senator Obama when he appeared at a La Raza event, and you were helpful to us in preparing for that event, and I heard a lot about you. And you were a legendary figure in the immigration debates for a couple of decades. Tell me about that and about the difference between being an advocate And by the way, you were there when a couple of very strong efforts were made for comprehensive immigration reform. You were there as an advocate in 2006, 2007 that failed. So talk to me a little bit about that whole experience of being the advocate. And then let's talk about your White House years and the challenges of being an advocate from within. As I mentioned, Latinos are invisible in Washington. And it's still too unfortunately true that the one issue where we're visible is the immigration issue. And like we have a stake in all kinds of everything, right? In the economy and healthcare and education. We have big stakes in all of those issues. But the one issue that Washington knows it kind of needs to talk to somebody from the Latino community is when immigration comes up. And, you know, I've learned it's remarkable. It, it's changed a lot. But back then in the late 80s and the 90s, when I was sort of at the height of doing all of this, Most of the people working on immigration were not from the Hispanic community. I was very frequently the only one in the room. And I did not um, think in terms of representation in quite the same way that I do now. Um, But so much of our job of the people, it was then called NCLR, it's now Unidos U.S. Our job was so much of Latinos 101, just explaining who we are, that we didn't just get here how the kinds of proposals which Congress members were being were putting up there or the administrations were putting up there, how they would affect us. I mean, it's just so much of it is just education. And um, I place a really high premium on finding ways to explain stuff that policymakers don't know in a way that they can hear and absorb the information. And I say that because I still do it all the time. And my, I, have, I have daughters, they're young. Adults, one lives in Chicago, actually. Um, They're 27 and 24, and their experience of me is they see me as, Mom, you're like always turning yourself into a pretzel to try to modify and modulate how you come across so that people will hear you. And they are younger, and they are not having it. Um, In their view, they want to express their experience. And if people can't absorb the information, then it's kind of on them. And there's, I, I sense that dialogue going on, some of it is an, is an age distinction, some of it is, I think, some changes in the way advocacy happens. But, man, I got, I got brought up with the sense that the most important thing you can do to try to influence policy is make yourself understood. And if you have to modulate in order to do that, then that's what it takes. And um, we're in a conversation now which feels very different from that. 
Yeah. I mean, I wanted to ask about that because I think one of the things that young people are reacting to is the environment. I mean, shortly after you came to Washington, but when you came to Chicago, it was right after this federal immigration reform that Ronald Reagan participated in that uh, liberalized the rules and allowed for millions of people to become uh, legalized. We have a president now who's built his political cred with his base on opposition to not just illegal or undocumented immigration, but but also you know strict curtailment of legal immigration. And we just saw him invoke a 60-day freeze on, on new green cards. And Stephen Miller, his advisor on this, has suggested, well, we'd like to maybe use this as a springboard to make permanent changes. I, I think back to the 2000s when you were working on this issue and President Bush was supporting comprehensive immigration reform. And you had partners like John McCain on the Republican side who were uh, willing to support it and, and help pass it. We're in a different place, aren't we? Yeah, we are. We certainly are. But the reasons for doing what I think of as the right thing, right, which is allowing undocumented people to get on the right side of the law and, you know, actually increasing legal immigration as opposed to curtailing it. Uh, I mean, the reasons for doing those things are the same. And what makes them appeal to the American public, I think, is the same, which is that it's in the best interest of our country. You know, economically, the way, part of the way we get back on track is um, through the kind of economic energy that immigrants bring. And when somebody like President Trump says, oh, Stephen Miller, who sits, by the way, in the office where I used to sit, which is something that I think about a lot, when they say, the goal here is to curtail immigration altogether, and we're going to stop green cards for 60 days, well, green cards are not going to people who just, like, got in line somewhere and decided that they wanted to come to the United States. The people who are getting green cards are Americans who are bringing in what their spouses. That's who can't come in for 60 days. Is your husband or wife the person that you're, you know, that you want to marry? That's who we mean. These are not people who are disconnected to the United States. And so there is, an, there is, I think two things are true. It's very clear that Stephen Miller, President Trump, and the people who are feeding them their policy ideas are, are coming from a white supremacist. Perspective. I've been fighting against that my whole career. The major organizations on the anti-immigrant side have ties to white supremacy. That's been true, you know, for 30, 40 years or, and longer, really. So that obviously needs to be stood up to. It needs to be explained. It needs to be understood. All of that is true. But it is also true that by itself, that's not the rationale for doing the right thing with respect to immigrants. We have to both undo the evil, which has been done by this administration. But we also have to sell the country on the truth, which is that the people who come in as immigrants are the family members of Americans, by and large, that their economic activity is something we depend on, Um, you know, starting with the people who are harvesting the food that you and I are eating, Um, you know, and and as we described earlier, the people who are doing the, the, the essential jobs that are keeping us all afloat. We need to be able to make that case, and we need to be able to make that case in a way that people can hear if we're going to succeed in both undoing the evil and moving forward in a compelling way. And I, you know, for all with all of the bumps and bruises that I have over a, you know, a long career in doing this, I believe in the American people's capacity to do the right thing. 
It's going to be, uh, and you know, the president's invoked this, it's going to be even harder, it seems to me, in a political environment in which people are feeling economically under siege and where there's such high unemployment. But, you know, it was interesting to me, you, you said recently that you disagreed with the policy that Julian Castro pushed in the presidential race, that we should essentially decriminalize border crossings, make it not a felony. And a lot of the candidates followed him down that road. And you, you said you thought that was unwise. And I was interested in that. Yeah. Look, I understand why he did it. And, and Julian is a friend of mine and someone that I respect and admire. And yeah, mine as well. Yeah. But he was framing it as the way to undo the policy, the horrific policy of family separation. And the way to undo the policy of family separation is to undo the policy of family separation. That was an administrative choice made by this administration. And, and you don't need Congress to pass a law decriminalizing border crossing in order to fix it. That law has been in place since about the 1920s. And the first administration to separate families in this way has been this one. So I, I was concerned about two things. One, it was oversold as a fix to a terrible thing. But also, it contributes to... Donald Trump's ability to say, these people just want an open border. And I don't think we do, and I don't think we should want an open border. I don't think that's the right policy formulation. And I think it's a mistake for so much of our advocacy to lend itself to that impression. Because I don't, ultimately, I don't think we can win what we're trying to win and improve things for the people who are being hurt that way. I think it's a strategic mistake. I also think it's substantively probably not the right policy. Now a word from our sponsors, then we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. So you, as I point out, you you were you were famous. You were a famous advocate on immigration for 20 years before you went inside the government, and you came to work for the Obama administration. As I said, I was a witness to a couple of years of that from inside, and I was always sensitive to the fact that you were a target because the administration made choices, had to make choices. Uh, some of the choices were about when to advance comprehensive immigration reform. And how much to emphasize that in the first two years when the president was dealing with the economic crisis and trying to pass health care reform. And, you know, we, all, we both remember these discussions. How hard was it for you to explain these choices at the time to your former allies in this fight? And do you view as a mistake that comprehensive reform wasn't taken up in the first two years? I, I can tell you why it wasn't, but I'm wondering what your perspective is. Yeah, so I knew the moment I took the job that I that I agreed to come and serve uh, in the White House that I would be criticized over immigration enforcement. It was, you know, part of what I thought about when I decided whether or not to do it. Because the minute you step inside government, you're responsible for governing. And as you know, the tools that are available to you are, especially when you're administering a broken set of laws, are, you know, grossly, crazily insufficient. And I walked in, one, knowing that I was working for a president who wasn't going to ever ask me to do something I didn't believe in, and I was right about that. And also that we could make some progress um, 
First of all, we hoped we could make progress reforming the law altogether, which ultimately didn't happen. But I also believe we could make progress on how immigration enforcement was conducted. Whether it gets conducted is not the issue, but how it gets conducted matters a lot. And I went in with the hope that we could make big changes in how it was conducted, and I was right, and we did. Um, so that all of that, to me, made it worth it to endure some criticism. And, there, and I knew that there would be people in my life who would, who would you know, never forgive me for playing a role in governing. And, and that's turned out to be true. And, you know, I'm prepared to live with that because we did a lot of good. Painful? Yeah, a little painful. Some of it got personal. But mostly, mostly it wasn't. And I learned the difference. This is sort of too blunt a way to put it, but it is shorthand that I know you'll understand. You're not going to swear, are you? No. <laughs> I promise. There's a difference between advocacy, which is aimed at lifting up a thing which the people who are governing need to know in order to get it right or to hold them accountable for doing something wrong, and advocacy, advocacy that's about lifting up your own righteousness. And I have a lot more respect for the former than for the latter. And we did a lot of good, and it was worth all of it. The, uh, just a, f a few uh, quick questions about this. Obviously, some of the consternation was not just that uh, immigration reform wasn't in that first wave when there was a Democratic Congress as the administration tackled other things. There was a vote on the DREAM Act, got through the House, failed in the Senate. I, I vote. There was consternation about enforcement of uh, immigration and the aggressive uh, deportation of uh, citizens. It was reordered over time so that the emphasis was put on people who had broken the law here uh, and not uh, and on people who were productive and law-abiding citizens. But nonetheless, I mean, I, I will just tell you this anecdote. A student at my Institute of Politics last year objected to a talk by Janet Napolitano, who was head of uh, Homeland Security, and uh, on the grounds that she was a, a white supremacist. And I said, and I was sort of taken aback by that, knowing her as I do. She runs the University of California system now. And the student said, well, she, she was in charge of the deportations because they were under Homeland Security. I reminded the student that that was President Obama's policy, not Janet Napolitano's policy. But you must hear a lot of that, that you were a part of that mass deportation regimen. Yep. But she was also, at, along you know, with me and ultimately President Obama, responsible for DACA. So uh, that's, that was also part of the regime. Are you worried, by the way, now you mentioned DACA. I, I asked you one question. I got to jump on this one. The court's going to rule in June on it. How concerned are you that they're going to throw it out? I'm quite concerned. And obviously, you never know what the court's going to do, not just on the basis of, the, of how the argument went. But I'm quite concerned. Um, and I know people in the DACA community are quite concerned. Um, and, you know, we, we're going to have one way or another to fight for legislation if this thing gets overturned, and I think it's possible that it will. And that, you know, the, the, only, the, the most recent example we have of how incredibly foolish it is to, to have attacked DACA in the first place is the number of people with DACA who are working in hospitals right now. Like, you know, and the contributions they've made as teachers and in a whole host of other ways. You expect if Biden gets elected president that he will move on legislatively on this piece and the larger piece? I do. I hope so, yes. Um, you know, we need the Congress in order to do that. 
um, and we probably need the Congress by a substantial margin in order to do in order to be successful. But here's the thing: this is the thing which needs to be fixed. <laughs> and um, the frame that President Trump has set up is along an axis of tough versus weak. And if the if the conversation is about who's going to be tough and who's going to be weak, uh, you know, frankly, the good guys aren't are never fare well under that kind of framework. But it's the wrong framing. The framing that works for the good guys is, I think of as smart versus stupid. Like what we offered the country with, uh, with the immigration bill that we passed through the Senate in 2013 and, and that Speaker Boehner would not bring up in the House in 2014, even though we had the vote, um, was fixing a problem. And I think even now, even with all of the crazy, um, I think the American people are prepared to support a generous immigration policy if they believe it's going to be fair and it's going to be orderly, there's going to be a set of rules and people are going to follow them. And I believe we can offer that. And if we offer that, we can, we can land in a place that's generous to, to the human beings who are at, at issue. What about the notion that, you know, the Obama administration was tough on deportation? They thought that by doing that, they could set the stage for compromise and you could get reform and that that was naive and it and it was unfair to the millions of people who are impacted by it. I find it incredibly frustrating because it doesn't look closely at the facts. Um, and the facts are these. So the, the, the argument that gets made is that there is that we had high deportation numbers, which is true. And that you compare those to the Trump administration's numbers, the Trump administration's numbers are lower, which is also true. But it's not an apples to apples comparison. And here's the difference. The two priorities for enforcement and, and the Obama administration is the first time there were ever priorities for enforcement. There were two. One, people who had just arrived, who had arrived very recently, under the theory that it is much more humane to turn people back who have just arrived, assuming they're not asking for asylum, than it is to remove people who have been in the country for 20 years and are raising families. So recent arrivals and people convicted of serious crimes. And in the highest year of deportations, the numbers were around 400,000 that year, 85% of those people had just arrived. And of the remainder, 95% had a conviction for a serious crime. So the numbers are high, but they are consistent with a set of priorities that really nobody has challenged. And I, you know, when there were candidates competing and beating up on Joe Biden for the Obama deportation record, my thought was, if any of them has a better set of priorities, I wish they would name them because I would like to know what they are. The reason the Trump administration's numbers are lower is because there are, we don't have single adults coming from Mexico anymore that can be easily, frankly, turned back because they're recent arrivals. Migration has changed utterly in the last decade. Now what we have are families coming from Central America. They're asking for asylum. And they're simply not available to be removed if you're looking to, to remove substantial numbers of people, as clearly the Trump administration is. So it's not an apples-to-apples comparison. The thing I think is absolutely fair to critique the Obama administration on, and I take responsibility for this, is that it took us too long to get to the enforcement priorities and to make them stick. In other words, we iterated. You know, We started with a set of memoranda over what our priorities should be, and then, frankly, dreamers kept getting caught up, kept getting uh, apprehended by the authorities, and that was really a sign that we were not accomplishing what we set out to, and it took us a while. But part of that process leads you to DACA. DACA is not a benefits program. DACA is a use of enforcement authority. Uh, and 
I think folks who spend a lot of time and energy talking about the Obama deportation record, as they call it, forget that uh, ultimately we were dealing with a different migration pattern and we were putting in place a set of enforcement priorities that ultimately stuck and that ultimately benefited a lot of people. Uh, More Than Ready is a book of principles uh, that you have drawn from your experience. What's the most important thing that you've learned in your journey, both in and out of government? Women and women of color in particular underestimate ourselves as the leaders that we already are. And the reason that I wrote the book was to remind folks, especially women who were earlier in their careers, that if they're sitting at the table, if they're in the room, they they... The rest of the room needs them there. They need what we know. They need uh, the value of our experience. And we do all of these things to show that we belong. And I've done them too. We, you know, we work extra hard. We make sure that we're way on top of the material. We recognize when people doubt that we belong there and, and we doubt ourselves. And the fact of the matter is the, the country and the world needs us right now and it's time to understand ourselves as the leaders that we already are. It's a great message. It's a great book. You're a great friend. It's always good to see you. Thank you, Cecilia Munoz, for making the time. Thanks so much, David. It's a joy to see you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.